Good day, and welcome back to Voice of Liberty, a podcast produced by Convention of States. My name is Bradley Cooper, and I'm your host. Now, there's so much going on in this world, and I know I say that every single week, but just reflecting on what this week has been, I, I for so many cities and counties and, and areas around the country, more restrictions have been put in place, more lockdowns have been mandated, and more masks have been mandated. And it makes me wonder, what would certain people who have been in politics before or certain prominent figures around the country really say? And if there's one man that we never had to guess what he was going to say or what his stance was, because it was so consistent and it was so powerful, it would have to be Senator Tom Coburn. Senator Coburn is a man that I would have loved to have as a guest on this show. And sadly, we don't have that opportunity. So I want to take today's episode and and dedicate it to Senator Coburn. But I also want to, to just do a little more than talk about him. I want to not bring a live guest on and, and do a traditional interview. But I want to take this third episode, a very special episode, and play one of my favorite remarks from Tom Coburn, actually from our Convention of States uh, Leadership Summit that was last year. Now, sadly, we won't get to have one of those again this year, but Senator Coburn had some really powerful words to shed uh, upon anyone, and I'm sure most of you that are listening to this have already heard it. But I really challenge you, maybe not all in one setting because it is rather long, But take some time out of your day. Break it up if you have to. But reflect on what Senator Coburn said and apply it to your life today, to our life today, to the circumstances that we are in right now. I know that Senator Tom Coburn would have very, very passionate opinions about what's happening right now. And I think if we allow his legacy to live on through his own words, that it can inspire educate, and really make us all better citizens. So if you wouldn't mind, just take a listen into this conversation from Mark Meckler, our president of Convention of States, and Senator Tom Coburn. I, now I'm going to bring somebody up I have a privilege to sit up here with and talk to. You're going to hear from, from him, some remarks from him first. And uh, it's somebody I've gotten to know really well. Over time, spent a lot of hours with him traveling, uh, sometimes in difficult circumstances, sometimes in hilarious circumstances, sometimes in incredibly frustrating circumstances in legislatures. When you travel with somebody like that, you get to know them pretty well. Uh, you know, because you see the good, the bad, and the ugly. You see everything. You see how somebody reacts when things go wrong. You see how somebody reacts when other people are hurting. Uh, and you learn a lot, hopefully. I learn a lot from everybody I get to hang out with. From this guy, I've learned way more than most people in my life. Uh, he, he has a, a bio, a CV, that's just incredible. I'm not going to give you any of it because you guys all know him and you basically know what he's done and you know what an incredible statesman he is and all of that stuff. And I, when I was talking about having him come up and how I was going to introduce Tom, I wrote to him and I asked, do you have a preferred bio? Right? which is a polite thing to do. I try to be polite. I want to know what he wants me to say. 
Now, you guys might have some idea of the kind of stuff Tom would say, but I, I want to read to you exactly what he wrote to me, and I forgive, forgive me, Tom, for sharing this, but I, it's just so good. Tom said, I think you should say what you have seen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Truth is God's measure of a biography. That's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Now, I know he was, not, he was not trying to be profound when he said it, but Tom can't help himself. There's a lot of wisdom in this guy. Uh, he's been an incredible mentor on a political basis, right? Years and years of experience in legislatures, running for office, understanding what makes politicians tick, knowing what an actual good politician, citizen, servant is, teaching me what that means, teaching me how to affect change inside of legislatures, helping me learn how to strategize. Uh, we just couldn't not have done what, what we have done with him without him. It just couldn't have been done. Uh, there are a lot of, so many stories I could tell you about, Tom. I, I want to start briefly with just how we first got working together because I think it shows you how Tom just makes stuff happen, right? He doesn't need anybody else. He's a one-man, make-it-happen machine. Well, one night we were sitting at home, me and Patty, I was in another room, she was in watching TV, and she started screaming and yelling and telling me I had to come in, and, and I asked her what was going on, she was watching Fox News. Greta Van Susteren was still on Fox News, and she said, oh my God, Tom Coburn just said he's going to work for Convention of States. <laughs> and I said, no, what? that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? And luckily we had the TiVo on or whatever, the DVR, and she rewinds it, and Greta Van Susteren says something like, so, you know, now that you're retiring from the Senate, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to spend the rest of my time dedicated to Convention of States, to calling convention. He went into the reasons why, and I just thought, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so I knew his uh, communications chief, uh, a guy by the name of John Hart, super nice guy, and I called John, and had a good relationship with John, and so I had John's cell phone, I called John, and I said, hey, uh, I just heard that your boss is going to work for Convention of States, and he said, yeah, so did we. <laughs> a, a wonderful surprise, better than any Christmas present I've ever received. So that was incredible. Along the way, one of the things Tom has taught me is he is really He's been an incredible mentor for me in teaching me about my faith and helping me to deepen my faith and challenging me to deepen my faith and really teaching me what, and we'll talk a lot about this when Tom comes up hopefully, about what love in action looks like. We're a weird political organization, right? We talk about love a lot. There's a reason because if you talk to any of my mentors, any of the people that I admire and listen and look up to, that's a lot of what they talk about. It's about where we come from. So we'll have some conversation about that. Hopefully we'll learn a little bit more about Tom's early life. Uh, you'll see why I love him so much. I know you guys love him so much. So it is my honor and privilege to introduce one of the greatest men I know, Tom Coburn. You want me here? Thank you. Please sit down. Well, thank you, Mark. Absolutely. You only exaggerated about 70%. <laughs> uh, Caroline paid me a lot to do that, Tom. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to remind you of some of the things we've heard since I've been here. 
did you hear Madison yesterday say we need a reoccurrence of principle? Here, remember hearing that? He also said we need the moral courage of virtue. Jefferson said, will you stand and face the mirror as self-governed individuals equal to any king? Incredible. He also talked about our commitment to the next generation. So you, you heard four core principles today from actors who really get into their part, who really believe what they're teaching us because they really know the history of our founding. Um, I found it really neat to hear them. I've heard them a lot of times because as a senator, we had a senator's meeting in the Republican caucus down here every year. And so I've got to hear all sorts of viewpoints. I want to tell you they're amazingly consistent, regardless of what Mark tells them to say. <laughs> they don't listen to me anyway, Tom. I try. I just want to share a little bit of my life. One of the things I've found that has been uh, a principle that has guided my life is obedience to what I'm called to do. There is a security in that that nothing else matches. I, in my life, have been fortunate enough to develop what I call a sixth sense. It's a spiritual sense. It's an awareness, and it's trustworthy. Just a little history. Um, when I first went to college, <clears throat> pardon me, I was going to be a doctor. And I listened, and I wasn't supposed to be a doctor. So I have a degree in production management and accounting. Kind of opposite. <laughs> and uh, I spent 11 years building the business, taking it public, family business with my father's help, sold it, worked for a conglomerate for two years, and my sixth sense is you need to be a doctor. So I go to med school as an old man known as Grandpa in med school. <laughs> How old were you, Tom? I was 32 when I started, but if you can imagine in 1979, they didn't want 32-year-olds, right? Well, OU admitted a 52-year-old this last year. Um, I, I went through that. I became a, did a general surgery and then a family medicine residency. Practiced a total of almost 28 years. 
delivered 4,500 babies, had more fun than you can shake a stick at, spent every other night at the hospital, had a great wife, that's the only way you can do that. And then all of a sudden, I was called to get into politics. My wife said, you're crazy. <laughs> I said, I know, but do I listen to you or do I listen to this sixth sense? Do I listen to a spiritual sense or do I listen to you? So mind you, I was running in a district that was 84% Democrat that hadn't had a Republican since 1920. And I won that seat. It didn't hurt that I delivered 4,000 babies. Because <laughs> what you do is you multiply 4,000 times six and you got 24,000 votes. <laughs> Two sets of grandparents and two parents. And then any aunts, uncles, cousins, or anything else. So I served a term-limited portion in the House. Went back, practiced four more years. While I was in the House, I delivered 550 babies. It just shows you how much Congress doesn't work. <laughs> I got talked into running for the Senate. I did that. I had four times the money spent against me that I spent. Won that. Called to do that. Obedience is a key thing. And after <clears throat> 10 years in the Senate, I came to the conclusion we can't fix our country in the Senate. It's not possible. So I left early, and I'd heard about this guy named Meckler. <laughs> and he was one and dining all the young uh, writers and PR people. And so I go to one of his events and start listening to what's going on. And I said, this is the only answer there is. There's not an answer other than this. And it's because we as a country have abandoned the core principles that our founders gave us. So my observation is this. I think there's four things that are required for a republic to survive. And I think if you look at history, you will con confirm this with all the failed republics that have been out there. And to survive, the fourth one I'm going to mention is going to be the most important. Because all the rest of them depend on the fourth attribute for a republic to survive. We heard Chuck Cooper, and by the way, I took my flip-flops off because he was so savage, so savagely dressed <laughs> that I could not wear my flip-flops up here even though I have bad peripheral neuropathy. Um, <laughs> But the first one is the rule of law. Not the rule of lawyers. It's the rule of law. There's no social justice. There's just justice. 
The second important thing is economic freedom. For 207 years, this country led the world in economic freedom. And that's defined by the ease with which you can start, run, and grow a business. We're number 17th in the world today. That happened because we have a bureaucracy that controls 60% of our economy and our legislators in our states don't. The third is a limited government. And we have anything but that. Do you realize that we have unelected bureaucrats making more decisions about our lives than we get to make about our lives? And we've empowered a class of imperial employees who are above the law and above accountability because Congress fails to do its job of holding them accountable. And then finally, the most important, which is virtue. The, the above all rest on virtue. The teaching, the mentoring, the modeling of virtue. When this country lost control of education, we lost control of virtue. I mean, you just think about it. How did it go out the door so quickly? How is it that we're so confused on things that 40 years ago nobody was confused on? So we've raised two generations who have no virtue training in their educational experience. Restoration of virtue will restore our freedoms. And the only way we can do that is via Article 5. Yeah. Article 5 is meant not only to deal with new problems, but most importantly, to restore original ideas of co-equal branches of government, of limited government, of enumerated powers and the enforcement thereof, and finally, an originalist interpretation of our Constitution. So my question to you all is this. Have we forgotten that what we tolerate, we empower? I want you to think about that again. Have we forgotten that what we tolerate, we empower? Silence is communication. Silence communicates agreement and grants permission. Think about that. The lack of activism, the lack of activity, the deafening silence of those who really care in this country in action 
enforces the very demise of our freedoms. We enable deception when we refuse to confront the lies. We are free men and women. The government is ours. We have an inalienable right to self-government. We need to take it back. So, so you're here, but what you take away from here is really the most important thing. What we tolerate, we empower. Let's quit. You're the leaders. You're the ones that are going to make the difference. You're the ones that are going to enthuse. You're going to activate. You're going to motivate. You're going to mentor so that we don't tolerate what we're seeing. One story, I've told Mark this before. I fly Southwest all the time. I love Southwest. They don't charge you for changing the ticket. They're nice. They're friendly. They'll give you extra, well, they don't give you peanuts anymore, but they give you everything else. <laughs> I try to sit next to the two most scowling people there are on the airplane and ask them, what's up? And half the time, after I finish telling them about convention estates, they got the biggest smiles on their face <laughs> because they don't know we can actually fix our country. They're not aware that we have a tool that our founders gave us. And so my charge to you as you leave here today is let's go and win. Let's do the things like we saw in that video. Let's have a plan individually for what I individually can do, what you individually can do, what we can all individually do, because I believe this country can cheat history. This republic doesn't have to die. This republic can survive. This republic can achieve more than we have ever achieved before. So let's go do it. Thank you, please. So you can see why Tom's been such a huge influence on me, on the organization, on all of us that have had a chance to hang out with him. Uh, he's got a big family. He's been an incredible influence there. Traveled with him to Washington, D.C. I see his influence in D.C. There's, there's things that go on behind the scenes in D.C., prayer groups and fellowship that you don't know about, that you don't hear. Nobody makes a big deal out of They're going on, at least in part because of things that Tom has initiated there. All, everywhere he goes, good things are left behind. It's a, it's a legacy, right, to travel around and be able to make an impact in that way and leave things be, behind 
that when you're not there physically in that place are still going on behind you. And there's, in our organization, he's had a tremendous impact. And there was something that happened uh, at one of our national team retreats. Now we do, we try to do a retreat uh, every six months or so. Sometimes it's every year or so, just depending on what we can fit in. I want to clarify, when I call it a retreat, you might think of a spa in Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, we go to a church retreat center uh, that, that Tim and Terry Dunn have, uh, their, their church has in Midland, Texas, in the middle of the desert. Uh, we love it, but it's kind of Spartan, <laughs> to be honest with you. And we call it a retreat. It's kind of funny because we work from about 8 in the morning until 9 or 10 at night. So everybody's exhausted at the end of the retreat. <laughs> this, is, this is how we retreat. And... Uh, I think it was the time before last we were out at this retreat, and uh, so Tom has a section that he teaches, and we just said, hey, you know, whatever you want to teach, you just teach. And you did a section on love, and that you're the whole section, it's all you talked about was love, and I would like you to kind of recap that for folks. Why, why is that such an important theme for you? And especially as somebody who's lived such a political life, it seems like there's not a lot of love in political life. Can you talk about why you think it's so important and how that plays out in a political life? Yeah, because that's the number one thing we all need. I mean, there's not anybody in this room that doesn't need to be loved. And given our vast, diverse experiences both through childhood, adolescence, and life, and marriage, and failures. Love is the thing that answers all those problems. So when you, and, and, and if you read Scripture, and you replace every time the word Jesus is mentioned, or Yahweh is mentioned with the word love, you get a totally different picture of what God's plan is for His creation. And so, love is about elevating people above yourself. And love also has to do with recognizing your own imperfections and your own failures and your own need for somebody to love you. So I've found the best way to get love instead of as a politician is to give it. And what I found is, is it, it's had, one of my rules in my staff, I had 60 staff members as a U.S. senator. Right? And I'm from a small state, right? Four million people. I had 60 cents. But our rule was, is you're going to treat everybody with respect. You're going to love every staff member of even every opposing person you come upon. You're going to be kind to them. You're never going to leave in a huff, although I had a lot of senators leave me in a huff. Um, <laughs> Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that was. It. I'll, I'll tell you a story in a minute on 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 uh, uh, Ted Stevens from Alaska, but it, I'll just, it's a story about love. Uh, but anyhow, people need that. So I always got asked, why were you great friends with President Obama? I'm 100% opposite of President Obama. I mean, President Obama was totally intellectually honest with America. He wanted to change America, right? He didn't lie about that. He worked hard at doing that. He was intellectually honest. But what I found is, is if I loved him, I could have a relationship with him that nobody else 
had because nobody else was trying to love him. Um, both while he was a senator and also while he was president. Unless they wanted something. I didn't want anything from him. I just knew that here's a guy in a position that's lonely that needs a friend. And I, when, when I was first <clears throat> sick, he'd be flying over the country and he'd call me from there first one and say, how you doing? I said, my butt hurts. <laughs> Not many people get to say that to the president. Huh? <laughs> so anyhow, I had a great relationship with him, even though we totally disagreed. So one of the points I tried to make is I gave a short little lecture on testifying is don't alienate people. Love them. Follow up with them. You, you can keep a door open that way. You get a second chance um, to not reconcile with people causes all sorts of physiologic changes. I mean, as a physician, I studied them. Why do you think that Zantac and Pepsid and all these other medicines are the number one medicine sold in America? It's because of lack of reconciliation. It's not because you got stomach acid. You have stomach acid because you have stress. You have stress because you're not reconciled. Why is Xanax big? Same reasons. So if, in fact, we use love, and what you have to do is if you're going to love somebody, you have to give your life away. You have to go second. And what I've found, and I don't always do it, I'm not preaching to you, I fail as much as anybody in this room. But what I've found is when you love somebody, you change them. And when you forgive somebody, you change you. So, Tom, I know... I've watched you practice this all over the country, and we go into legislatures, and uh, we're not always lovable ourselves, and certainly we meet legislators that aren't lovable. Well, I have one bad example in South Carolina. You know about it. <laughs> we but won't talk about that, that one. <laughs> Tell us about, can you think of a situation uh, in all these legislatures, is there a particular time you remember where, where this was practiced, you practiced it, you watched somebody else practice it, we, we turned a legislator? You remember all the letters in, uh, we did down in Arkansas? Arkansas, yeah. yeah. Can you talk about that? Ar well, we, we kind of, we, he's here. Is Randy here? Yeah. Where's Randy Alexander? Where are you? Right so there. So here's my hero in Arkansas. So, so we, we'd been working in Arkansas three or four years. Arkansas should have been easy. But our hard opposition was from the hard right, not from the left. And what we attempted to do was to write personal letters to legislators, not, not an email, not a scripted letter, a personal letter from our volunteers and hand carry them. And we had five or six members of the legislature who actually wrote letters back and said, because you wrote me a handwritten letter, and explained your position, I have changed my mind, and I'm voting with you. Yeah. 
So the powerful part of personal touch and effort, in other words, you have to, to write a personal letter, it's easy to punch a button on a computer and send an email, right? But to write a personal letter and to hand deliver it actually changes people because it conveys love. It conveys effort. It conveys sacrifice. It conveys commitment that you really mean what you're doing. And that's powerful. That's powerful. When, when you receive that from somebody else, that's powerful. And it causes you to reconsider. Causes you to think. So Randy's my hero because that his, was his program there. And we're duplicating it in lots of areas across the country. We did some in Utah as well and really made an impact. Yeah, this is an interesting thing, and uh, full credit to the whole team there, Randy and uh, Bud Cornwall, who right. now works on our national staff, right. by the way, and uh, Jackie out there. Um, this whole team put together this program. You know, you, I showed you the guy on the bike who invented that by himself. This just came out of the team there, right? It's not the wisdom in the organization primarily doesn't come from here or the executive team or the national staff. It comes from you guys. So these programs, we learn from you. You do it. We watch it well, work and we say, wow, we should steal that. <laughs> we should spread that all over the country and tell them that we invent. No, I'm just kidding about that part. <laughs> we'll give you guys credit, but the great stuff comes from you. There's another aspect of this. You know, We talk about that we need to love on the legislators. Uh, sometimes not easy to do. I trained on this in the last session that I did. They're, they get pretty aggressive with us, and, and we have to behave in a, a kind and genteel way. I, for me, as a human, that's, that's been hard. That's been a real hard lesson to learn. It's frustrating. They lie to us, to our faces, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they deceive us in ways that are really underhanded, you know, tell us they're going to vote for us, and then we watch them go testify against us on yeah. the floor and stuff like that. Or so, leadership promising you something that doesn't happen. So you've been doing this for a long time, politics, and, and that kind of uh, duplicity, I think, is endemic to politics, unfortunately. So how, in situations like that, where people do this kind of stuff to you, how do you, how do you love? How do you continue to love? Well, let, let me clarify. Yeah. I think there's two, type of, two types of legislatures. Legislators. I think there's the ones that have a goal of getting way ahead. I think those are the ones that are double-minded. It's called expediency. Right? I think the vast majority of legislators are not that way. I think they're straight up honest. I think they tell you what they think. I think they're amenable to being changed. But it's those that seek leadership, seek power that are hard. You don't have any choice. There is no answer other than to love them. The, 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 the point being is if in fact you have somebody that's done that to you, you know, we need to be wise, but also skillful. So that means they'll probably do it to you again. So, which means you need to have to double load your shotgun, <laughs> right? So you have to have twice as many votes, and you have to have a lever on a leader that says, here's what's not going to happen on your agenda if this doesn't happen on our agenda. So, you know, we have to play hardball, but we play it with a smile on our face and play the same game they play, but we're not duplicious. We're straightforward with it. And that worked well with me. I was going to tell you about Ted Stevens. 
Ted was a mighty man in the Senate. I, I put the, the bridge to nowhere up amendment. Everybody in the Senate now says they voted for it. There were 13 that voted for it. Uh, <laughs> but it did, it, did, it did pass. He won. Uh, I thought I was going to have to resuscitate him on the Senate floor. He was so mad. But after that, he was in an election, and I was holding several of his bills that were just ridiculous, you know, because he was chairman of the Appropriations Committee, and he was spending money that we didn't need to spend. So, I mean, I went down there with my one little staffer, me, and he had his whole committee staff. He had about 30 people there. And I just said, well, I'll be happy to work with you. We'll try to find a way to pay for it. And by the way, it's outside of the enumerated powers. We probably ought to try to find a way to get it inside. And I mean, he yelled at me all the way down the road. You'll never get anything out of this Senate. I will make sure nothing, you know, boom, 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 boom. So I bought him a box of Cuban cigars <laughs> and mailed them to him and said, I love you, Ted. Sorry we had a disagreement. So every two weeks, he'd call me on the phone and said, come on down. He had the best office in the Senate, right? Come on down to the beach and smoke a cigar with me. So it's just those little acts of kindness of moving towards reconciliation that actually changes people. Because he knew he didn't have to have that to get reelected. He knew that. But he was playing his game. And I was blocking. I said, well, here, I'm sorry. But it works. Love works. Just, just try it on your dog. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the first times that I interacted with you was during the height of the Tea Party movement. Mm -hmm. And I, I was spending a lot of time on Capitol Hill I call those the wasted years. <laughs> and uh, and I, ha I happened to get a meeting with you in your office. Mm -hmm. And we had an exchange that was, maybe it didn't seem extraordinary to you, it was extraordinary to me because of what you said. So in those days, everybody, every senator, every congressman was the Tea Party guy or gal, right? All of them were waving the Tea Party banner and they all wanted to say how great the Tea Party was because that's where the excitement was. And you weren't, actually, and you were unique in that. And I wasn't there to ask you about that, I just wanted to talk to you, I admired you, and the first thing that you said to us was, hey, I just want you guys to know, I totally support what you're doing and I'll probably never talk about it. And the reason I don't talk about it is because I don't want you to think that I'm trying to make hay out of it for myself because you guys are doing this and I had nothing to do with this. I believe exactly what you believe, but I'm not gonna try to make hay out of it. And I think that's really unique. Why, like, what makes you like that? I mean, that's an, ex I, I know that's a hard question, but that's an extraordinary way to be where in politics you're always, people are always trying to take credit for something, right, to elevate themselves. You, you weren't willing to do that and that's unusual. Well, I think that's my faith. Um, if, if you get your affirmation from other people or from accomplishment, it doesn't last. If you get your affirmation that you were made in the image of God, that he has a plan for your life, that, that you are special, never to be duplicated again, 
and that if you will follow his guidance, he calls knowing him a success. Right? So that's where that comes from. Well, you know, so that's, this is an interesting thing to me. That's such a, we had, it was a small interaction, right? It had a profound impact on me in a small interaction. Something that we, I think, often don't pay enough attention to that we don't know, right? If we live, if we're walking in faith, this is what I've learned from you. If we walk in faith, if we work to try to walk in faith all the time, we're probably having that effect a lot of the time. And we just don't know. You didn't know that had any effect on me. Um, there's a story that I would like you to tell, if you don't mind. This is a, another early time that you and I intersected. I happened to be in Washington, D.C. Uh, I had met with uh, your attorney, Steve Hart, mm-hmm. and a uh, great guy, and great lawyer. And I was in his office on, on other stuff, and he said, so you're in town for Tom's going away party. And I said, I don't know anything about that. And he goes, oh, you have to come. And I said, no, yeah, I'm not really comfortable at stuff like this. No, no, all the senators will be there and a bunch of, it's gonna be awesome, you gotta be there. And I really tried to defer because I'm really uncomfortable at stuff like that. I was just a grassroots guy, I'm like, no, no. And he's like, no, you, you have to be there. So I showed up at this event, it's at the Capitol Hill Club, right, which another place seems weird for me to be. And I show up and I get there and the room is packed, it's your going away party after you, you know, you're retiring. And I walk into the room and I don't know anybody. Except for I see every face I've ever seen on television in politics is in that room. It's very intimidating. And I walk in, I don't know anybody, and I see uh, name placards at every seat in the room. Except for my name, anywhere. So now I feel like I'm just a complete crasher. And I'm at this party, and uh, they finally, one of your staffers or somebody got found me a place to sit, and I sat down and I watched, and there was a story that was told about you uh, and I can't remember who told the story, it might have been Lindsey Graham, about a trip that you made to China. And the, the story opened like this, and then I'd love you to tell the story. They said, Tom Coburn is the most honest, straightforward, no BS guy you'll ever meet in your life. And, and frankly, often a pain in the you know what because of it. <laughs> I won't use the language they used. And he said, you know, one time we did this trade mission to China. Do you remember the story? Oh, yeah. Can you tell that story for the folks? Yeah, we went, um, <clears throat> I don't know if you remember, there was a movement because China was manipulating their currency. And they have. And they are today. Right. Um, and so Schumer and Graham were kind of hooked up trying to get some type of piece of legislation to punish China for manipulating their currency. And they invited me to go. They flew on a, a Air Force jet. I flew commercially. I didn't want to go over there and spend two or three days doing anything uh, that wasn't going to be accomplishing anything. And so we go in to meet with a guy by the name of Boji Lee. I don't know if you know, remember that name, but Boji Lee is now in prison because he became a threat to Xi in one of the southern provinces. Well, he, at the time, he was the Commerce Secretary. And so we're on a trade mission and a currency mission, and, uh, and I had actually studied their WTO ag- agreement. And so, you know, you go on protocol, I'm the most junior senator, and uh, they go through and all these pleasantries, and it's my turn to talk, and I said, uh, um, Secretary, uh, 
do you all plan on honoring your commitment to the WTO? He said, no. <laughs> and I said, would you say that again to me so I can make sure I understood it? He said, no, we have no intention of honoring our commitment to the WTO. And of course they haven't. And yet we signed an agreement and there's been no enforcement action against it. And I said, well, Mr. Secretary, thank you very much. Uh, you've told me everything I need to know about your, your country's position on keeping your word, honoring your contracts, honoring your signatories to international agreements. I'm leaving. And I got him walked out. Schumer's <laughs> mouth went. <laughs> Graham, for the first time in my life, I've never heard him say a word. <laughs> first time. <laughs> and I immediately got on a plane and flew home. Because there was no reason. When you're dealing with deception, which I mentioned earlier, if you tolerate it, that's acceptance. That's acceptance. And our country has tolerated. That's why we're in the trade war we're in today. Had 10 years ago we solved this, we wouldn't be where we are today. So lack of leadership causes all sorts of problems. So, you know, you're talking, that's leadership on the international stage. Uh, gosh, I wish we had more of that. Um, uh, it's, I love these stories because I learn from every one of these stories. There's another story that you tell uh, about leadership at a much more local level, which is inside your staff. And we've talked a lot about how, uh, how great the staff is here, how much we love each other. Uh, I learned a lot of this, I think, from you talking to me about your staff. And you told me that your staff attracted a certain kind of person. And not that, and this is this important distinction here, not that you went out hunting for a certain kind of person, no. but that your staff attracted a certain kind of person. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, yeah, but I, I don't want to be uh, self-aggrandizing in that at all. Um, Key people make all the difference in the world. And if they have the characteristics and attributes of real leaders, uh, the greatest leader in the world ever known are the leadership principles of Jesus. They're all based on sacrifice. They're based on sacrifice. And so if you take that leadership model and you put in place key people who follow that leadership model, then what happens is other people get drawn to it. And then all of a sudden, you have people wanting to come to work for you who have stellar qualities because they see how people are being treated, not just inside your staff, but outside your staff. And so it, it's self-reinforcing and self-building. The other thing we did is I'd have a staff meeting twice a week of the whole 60. And the staff meeting would, would be only around a word. What does fidelity mean? Or what does reconciliation mean? So we'd spend an hour, 60 of us, and I made every person have to talk. 
You have to participate. What does that word mean to you? So we would pick, and my chief of staff would help pick the word. Michael Schwartz, I don't know if you, he died of ALS about three years before I left. Wonderful, wonderful man. But those were the best staff meetings I had because what they did is reinforced character traits that then people would think about and utilize as they dealt with other people outside of our staff as well as inside of our staff. Yeah, and his staff had an incredible reputation on the Hill. I knew other staffers. I mean, there was just something special about being in Tom's office. This is really important to me that you take this lesson into your own teams. I mean, we, we try to live this lesson at the national staff level. The organization's only as great as deep as that goes, right? So that's up to you guys to choose, if this makes sense to you, to, to live that at your own level in the organization and within your own life, right? In your own personal life, in your own family life, in your own social life. Uh, they're universal principles, right? They don't change. We learned that from David Barton. Principles don't change. Uh, there's an area I want to go into about just uh, more generally how you live your life. You, people can look at your life from the outside, and there's a storybook life, right? There's the guy who built the family business, made a bunch of money, went to med school, became lost a Lost a bunch of money. Lost all, we don't talk about that part. That's not the storybook part. Yeah. <clears throat> Flew around in your own jet, right? I mean, incredible life, amazing life. Beautiful wife, Miss Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken, right? Really amazingly beautiful wife, talented, more talented than she is beautiful, way more talented than him, by the way, if you haven't met her. Just saying. That's true. <laughs> um, becomes a doctor, successful practice, becomes a member of the House of Representatives, uh, ends up breathing the rarefied air of the United States Senate. You told me a number. How many people have been senators in American history? Roughly? I think 1,600. I mean, think about that. Only 1,600 people in the entire history of the country have served in the United States Senate. You've been there. Uh, so you've, you've been basically at the pinnacle of, of power in the United States. Uh, it's, it hasn't always been easy. Right? I mean, you faced incredible challenges in your life. Uh, you were 38 when you were first diagnosed with cancer, is that right? No, I was 26. 26 years old, okay. And so, and not some small, right? So big deal, multiple times through your life, you faced cancer down and, and fought back cancer and, and continued to fight. And one of the things that I've experienced in being with you is uh, whether you're feeling at the top of your game or you're not feeling great, I've never seen you. I've never seen you slow down intentionally. You've never said, "I got to slow down. I don't. I'm too tired. I don't." You're always in the fight, which is an incredible thing to me. I've never seen anybody else like this. Why do you keep fighting? Well, what would you do if you didn't? <laughs> <laughs> Life's intended to be a battle. We're in to survive. We're in to compete. We're in to achieve. So the question goes back to that sixth sense. <clears throat> Do you abandon it? Because you're facing difficulty? 
I'll bet you people in this room have had lots more difficulties than I have in my life. I just bet you everything I got that that's the case. The fact is, giving up isn't in my nature, and it isn't in our nature. It isn't in our country's nature. It isn't in our children's nature. It isn't in ours, and it wasn't for sure in our parents'. So, what are our options? I'm in this to the end. Whenever that is. I don't think I can end it better than that. Love you, brother. Go to conventionofstates.com, press the button, sign the petition. More importantly, get 10 of your friends to do the same. When you sign the petition, then that sends a letter to your state legislator. You go on the list in their district as a supporter. We deliver those lists to the state legislators. It means something to them. Oh.